I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the program, we're welcoming a very special guest onto the show. A legendary activist whose work dates all the way back to the 1960s. He's had encounters with figures like Martin Luther King, Howard Zinn, Timothy Leary, and many others. Harvey Wasserman, historian and author of the new book. The People's Spiral of U.S. History. And let me tell you, if you've never heard Harvey Wasserman before, you're in for a treat. This is a whirlwind conversation as we delve into a number of topics, including psychedelics, GOP election-stealing hijinks, 60s radical activism, the riots at the Democratic National Convention in 1968, J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI's COINTELPRO ops against a news service that Harvey was involved with many decades ago. Harvey's time spent in a hippie organic farming community, the No Nukes movement, Harvey's criticism of California Governor Gavin Newsom over nuclear reactors in Diablo Canyon, and of course, an outline of his fascinating new book, The People's Spiral of U.S. History, which examines what he believes are the two forces that have been caught in a dialectical struggle going back to America's earliest days. All that and much more on this edition of Parallax Views with the legendary activist, historian, and all-around fascinating Harvey Wasserman. Welcome to Parallax Views, a guest that I've wanted to have on for quite some time now. Uh, he's worked with a previous guest on this show and a friend of the show, Bob Petrakis. Uh, he's a perennial activist and the author of the new book that's entitled The People's Spiral of U.S. History. Harvey Sluggo Wasserman, how are you doing tonight? Good. Great to see you. I hope you don't mind. I'm lying down. I just had knee surgery. So, um, um, but it's great to be with you. I appreciate it. So just for my listeners, uh, if you could give some background on how you got into uh, the world of activism and the work you've been doing on issues like 
uh, voting rights and uh, nuclear issues. So I grew up in Columbus, Ohio. I was a junior in high school. I was captain of the high school tennis team. And my parents were quite, quite liberal. Um, uh, the Kennedy uh, supporters, actually, my parents were both born within a year and a mile of John Kennedy. And so um, when I was a junior, a friend of mine came to me and asked me if I would go to a um, demonstration against a segregated roller rink in Columbus. And so I did, and the three of us picketed, and we chanted, don't skate, integrate, and we won. Uh, they had they were forced to integrate. And I thought that was just so cool. So, um, you know, I was very competitive, very sports-oriented, and I just thought, well, you know, I can be an activist. Why not? And um, I went to the, uh, after that, I went to the University of Michigan and uh, became active in the civil rights movement and in the anti-war movement. I actually went in 1966 as a reporter. I was a reporter for the school paper, the Michigan Daily. And I, they flew me down to Mississippi in the summer of 66. And I actually personally shook hands with Martin Luther King. Um, it was very cool. What was and, that experience uh, like getting to meet King? Well, it was for a nanosecond. Uh, what, what shocked me about Martin Luther King was that I was taller than he was. Never occurred to me that I would be taller than Martin Luther King, but, uh, but he was a very nice guy, very cordial. And um, it was a, quite an experience being in Grenada, Mississippi in 1966, marching with the civil rights movement. Um, um, and I met Stokely Carmichael, also great activist. And uh, then I was in the, um, involved in the anti-war movement. I mean, they wanted to send me to Vietnam. I wasn't about to go. I did have one cool um, accidental uh, experience. I was, um, I was the editorial director of The Daily, uh, which was a big paper. We came out every day and very well respected, more than 100 years of tradition. And so I controlled the editorial page. And I was also the campus stringer for the United Press, which was, you know, a worldwide news service. This is, of course, before the days of the internet and before the days of the uh, 24 hour news cycle. So I came in on a Saturday and I didn't have anything to put on the page. So I got a bunch of stuff off the wires, but um, the left side you had to write yourself. And I had been thinking for a while about writing an editorial for legalizing pot. I had never smoked pot. And um, I really didn't know much about it, but the guy before me, um, uh, the editorial director, Jeff Goodman, had written, he knew a lot. He had written a very good article um, for legalizing pot. And so I went back and I got it. And I, I took all his research and, you know, re, rewrote it. And um, I put the, um, I filled the left side of the page and um, we were done. It, it was a morning paper. So we, we locked down at two in the morning. But um, when I finished it, I, I called the United Press, my bureau in Detroit. 
And I said, hey, you're not going to believe this, but some crazy hippie in Ann Arbor has just written an, an editorial for legalizing pot. <laughs> and I said, oh, my God, you know, uh, send us a story about it. And so I didn't tell him what was my story that I was writing about. And I didn't get a byline uh, with the UPI. It was just special to the UPI because, you know, I was just a lowly stringer. And uh, they took the piece and they put it on the wire. And I, I was really happy here. I'd, I'd filled the paper and I made five dollars. You know, you could buy you could buy two dinners with five dollars back then. So um, I went to bed. And in the morning, at six in the morning, I got a call from ABC News in New York saying, hey, did you write this editorial for legalizing pot? And I said, yeah. And they said, and they they put me on the air in probably the biggest radio station in the country. I couldn't believe it. So what had happened was the story had gone on the wire and, and nothing, there was no other news uh, on a Saturday in January of 1968, seven, 67. So it was like, it went in every newspaper in the world because they, all these newspapers had big Sunday editions and they didn't have anything to put in them. So they all put, used my story. And I got like dozens of radio and TV interviews. And I got to say, I said, well, you know, I've never smoked pot, but I don't see why it should be illegal. And, um, you know, it's a civil liberties issue. And a lot of times I would go on TV with these, with a suit and tie, and I'd look really straight. And I didn't smoke pot until after the news died down, you know, went on about three, four weeks. <laughs> and um, then when it was over, I smoked pot. <laughs> and um, I, I actually, I still really like the smell of pot. But I've never been able to smoke it because I'm allergic to THC. It oh, really? Me, yeah, it makes me dizzy. So, you know, for I so I was one of the original advocates of, you know, um, legal marijuana in the sort of archive of articles about it. But, you know, I smoked it for a while. Uh, then, then I started doing meditation and I, saw, I didn't smoke it again for decades. And I still don't smoke it. But I still like the smell. I think it's good. And of course, there's absolutely no reason why it should be illegal. I mean, you know, that's ridiculous. And so the so I'm very proud of my accidental, you know, path breaking role in the in the global movement to legalize pot. So I, I have to ask and I, I want to get into your work on uh, issues related to nuclear, but. You know, the 1960s and, and the early 1970s, I feel like uh, the movements of resistance that existed in those periods really sort of like uh, made the establishment very, you know, um, fearful. Uh, you know, I, I think we saw how Nixon reacted with his law and order spiel, and we saw what happened with Kent State uh, in the early 70s. So what do you think it was about the sort of anti-war movement and the civil rights movement uh, that together sort of just created this fear in the uh, establishment. What, what was the power of the sort of activist movements of that era? Well, first of all, there was race. And, you know, the Republican Party really did not want black people to vote. They still don't want black people to vote. You know, I mean, it's, it's a and for Nixon, it was a Southern strategy. 
And, and so he hated the civil rights movement. J. Edgar Hoover hated Martin Luther King. And they, did, they knew that if black people voted, especially in the South, that the whole dynamic of the country would change. And, you know, there's no mystery there. Um, you have a lot of people who are really genuinely racist. Uh, Nixon was, you know, a racist. But more importantly, he could count the votes. And, you know, many of the deep South states, Alabama, Mississippi, uh, the Carolinas, Georgia, Florida, they all had 25 to 40 percent black people. So if that 25 to 40 percent black people could vote, you just need a few whites and, and you were going to have a liberal situation. Look what happened in Georgia in 2021. Black people voted and you wound up with two uh, Democratic senators. So the, the, the drug war at the same time, and there's a very famous quote about this, and it's in my book, The People's Spiral of U.S. History, where Nixon's, one of Nixon's advisors, John Ehrlichman, who was an awful guy, but he turned out to be an actual environmentalist, weirdly enough. But he said, look, we knew that marijuana wasn't a problem. We knew it wasn't addictive, all this stuff. But we also knew that black people and young people smoked it. So we knew if we made it illegal, we could arrest them and bust up their communities and, and really you know, screw them up. And they did. I mean, from the early 1970s until the present, more than 40 million people, that's 40 million people were arrested for pot and other drugs. And they used that to cripple the anti-war and the civil rights movements. So that was, you know, that was a big part of it. Also, you know, smoking pot really did change your mind. I mean, there's a fabulous... Um, series out now based on the book by Michael Pollan called How to Change Your Mind. And pot really did change people how they thought, as did LSD. I, I took LSD a half dozen times and um, uh, mushrooms and peyote, and uh, they really did make a difference in our view of the world. I mean, the bottom line is that, when, you know, I was born the last day of 45, so um, I was right in the thick of it. And we set out to do two things. We set out to revolutionize the culture and to end the empire. And we did revolutionize the culture. I mean, the culture, it's hard for you young people to really get a grasp on it, but the culture of America today is completely different than it was in the, in the 50s and 60s. You know, you didn't talk about being gay. You didn't have um, interracial marriage you didn't have rock and roll i mean yeah you didn't have people get smoking pot you didn't have open sex i mean you know it was just a whole other world and we changed it totally uh, but we didn't succeed in ending the empire and that's what we got to do now so if you could and i want to get into the title of your book uh the people's spiral i like that little it feels like a little bit of a reference to howard's in there the people's history but before we get into that what do you mean by the empire like when you're when you're uh discussing the issue of say imperialism or empire with someone uh that you know doesn't think about america in terms of being an empire how do you explain that to them like like what do we mean when we say the empire 
Well, it's a country that has a gargantuan military and it goes around conquering other countries or at very least overthrowing their governments and putting in people that the corporations like. I mean, that's, that's the American empire. My book, The People's Spiral, is in fact uh, built on, on, on Howard Zinn, uh, the people's history of the United States, and on um, a contemporary of his, uh, equally brilliant, uh, named William Appleton Williams, who was a socialist historian at Wisconsin. And William Appleton Williams had a book called The Contours of American History. And it put out a cycles theory, which I really liked. And then in 1970, I adopted it and still, still believe in it. And so I knew Howard Zinn. And in, the, um, um, in 1970, I was a grad student. My, my ambition in life was to be a college professor. And I had a Woodrow Wilson fellowship to the University of Chicago in 1967-68. And that's when the convention happened, the Chicago convention. And I got really radicalized. And I- um, for, for people that don't know, could you talk about the Chicago convention? That was like with the, uh, the, the, the so-called riots happened. Well, what happened was that the Democratic Party was running the war in Vietnam. And you know the great liberal Lyndon Johnson, who was doing the Great Society, uh, tragically uh, got us into the war in Vietnam. It was outrageous and just completely unnecessary, and a, a real horrible, you know, a wrong term. And so, on the one hand, while we thank, you know, my mother's mantra at the end of her life was "Thank God for Medicare." Uh, on the other hand, and Johnson did a lot of really great things for civil rights and for social welfare, but he, 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 you know, got us into the war and wouldn't get out for God's sakes. So we come to, and he wouldn't listen to us. And so uh, I was draft eligible. I, uh, I, I was 21 in uh, 1967 and um, the democratic convention uh, for the Chicago, for the, uh, National Party was in Chicago in 1968, in August. And uh, we, you know, the anti-war movement, which is very big, uh, uh, told the, the city of Chicago that we were going to come demonstrate. There's a pretty good docudrama uh, docu about this called the Chicago 7, about the trial. And uh, Abby Hoffman, sorry, who was a close friend of mine, I loved Abby Hoffman, I'm a big fan of Abby Hoffman. I grew up on uh, the Yippies and their sort of um, provocatorish uh, pranksterism. I'm a big fan. Well, he was a wonderful guy, Abby Hoffman, and a brilliant guy, and very, very dedicated and very, very funny. I mean, one of the things he taught me, and he taught me a lot, was you got to have a sense of humor and you have to be entertaining. A, a good organizer is never boring. And a, a good, someone who has good politics always has a sense of humor. Howard Zinn had a wonderful sense of humor, you know, and, and you, you have to be able to not take yourself self too seriously. And this is in my history book. You know, I, I tried to make it a little bit funny. I put in some drugs, sex and rock and roll. And by the way, anybody can get my book. You can get it at the usual, you know, online sources, Amazon and all that. But 
If you want an autographed copy, write me directly, solartopia at gmail, S-O-L-A-R-T-O-P-I-A at gmail.com. I'll send you a personalized copy. It's not actually autographed. Well, my, my signature is worthless, but um, I'll write you a note and have it sent directly from the printer. So that's solartopia at gmail. So what happened to me was I loved history. I majored in history and journalism at the University of Michigan. And then at Chicago, I had a fellowship uh, to become a, a college professor of history. And I got there and um, I ran into a wonderful professor named Jesse Lemish. And he preached people's history. He said that the real history you have to study is the people, history of the working people, the sailors and the, and the, the factory workers and, uh, and during the American Revolution. And I took two classes with him and he completely blew my mind because he showed in these two classes that historians have politics. It never occurred to me that historians had a political point of view. You studied history, the facts were there, and that was it. And he showed the differentiation between different um, political historians. I, I was going to say real quick, because people often don't acknowledge that, but we do see it with different historians, because a lot of historians, they sort of tell history from the view of the, the people at the top of the sort of uh, social food chain and not the people at the bottom. So you are... A lot of historians are just giving you one perspective. They're not telling you history, history from like the, the, the bottom up. They're telling you it from the top down in a lot of ways. Exactly right. Exactly right. And that's what Jesse taught. So in my graduate year at the University of Chicago, while the convention was all, you know, getting ready to happen, and the city was- and He had the was, demonstrators versus the police, basically, you know, yeah. Well, the demonstrations, and I'll get back to this, but the demonstrations, the riots, the so-called riots, were 100% the fault of the mayor of Chicago, Richard Daly. He had absolutely no business denying us permits to march or to camp. He was an idiot. I mean, all he had to do was say, okay, you have a right to march, which you do, you have a right to camp. So here, camp out in, in uh, Grant Park, and you, here's a permit to march every day. And the riots would never have happened. And Richard Nixon would never have been president of the United States. It was 100% uh, Dick Daly's doing. And he had no excuse for it. No, no reason, no legal standing whatsoever. And, uh, and I got beat up uh, twice that year. Once at the draft board. And that once again during the marches. And, you know, I mean, uh, he lost his mind. He said, you know, I'm basically running the place and you're not going to march in my city. And he had no right to do that. He was a fool to do that. I mean, history would have been totally different. I mean, Abby, you know, Abby was a prankster and Paul Krasner and Jerry Rubin and Tom Hayden and Dave Dellinger. I mean, it was an amazing group of people. And we were bound and determined to march. And uh, all he had to say was, sure, go ahead, march. What do I care? And, um, and I'll give you police protection, and that was it. It would have been nothing. And, and Nixon never would have won that election if Daley had done that. And it's all explained in my history book. But I was there. And one thing about my history book is 
I make it clear what my opinions are. And where I was a participant in, I was, I participated in many demonstrations during the Vietnam War, and I, I helped farm an orga- uh, I helped form an organic farm. And I was very clear in my opposition to the war in Vietnam, and I make that clear in the history book. You know, you got to tell people where you stand. So, based on Jesse Lemus's lectures, I reread all the history books that I'd ever read, a- a- including Howard's in stuff, and as I said, uh, William Appleton Williams. And then, um, I, as I say, I got beat up at the demonstrations, and I managed to avoid uh, going to Vietnam. I took LSD at my physical, um, and uh, they, they really didn't want me. And um, I also took LSD in the visitor's gallery of the United States Senate. That was very interesting. I don't know if I'm the only person who's ever done that, but, you know. Oh, it's really, first of all, it's a beautiful building. It was kind of like an oh wow moment. You're sitting up there. It's like being in the Sistine Chapel, you know. And I was looking at the ceiling and listening to him blab away. And, you know, I, I was there for about two hours. And then finally I said, okay, well, that was fun. And I left. <laughs> so, you know, um, but I then went up. We I wound up, it's a long story, but I wound up on a hippie farm in Massachusetts. And um, at this farm, um, I, um, I decided I was going to write my own history of the United States. And so what I did was, I'm going to change positions here, so I may lose your video a little bit, right? No problem. So I, my uncle owned a bookstore in Boston, and um, I went to the libraries, and I got tons and tons of books, and I decided to write my own so-called, which I, my title was The People's History of the United States. And um, very, very humble of me at the age of 22 to decide I was going to write a history of the United States. I mean, really, it was very ridiculous, but I didn't know anything about U.S. history, really, except, you know, a few college courses. But anyway, um, I wound up getting completely entranced with the period between 1860 and 1920. And, um, and I, I did a, uh, I spent a year and a half on it. And I wrote a whole bunch of pages because um, I fell in love with like Eugene V. Debs and the socialists and the populist farmers and the workers. And, you know, it was a, it's a fascinating period. Yeah, Debs trans- is a personal hero of mine. Well, he was my, he became my guy. You know, I, I didn't know, any, nobody ever taught us about Eugene V. Debs. You know, I, I studied history, U.S. history. Uh, I majored in it at the University of Michigan and then at the University of Chicago. Nobody ever taught us about Eugene V. Debs and the socialist movement. I mean, come on, you know. So anyway, um, I wrote um, a couple hundred pages and I was sending it to all these publishers and they were writing me letters like, oh, you know, come on, drop dead, never, never call us again, blah, blah, blah. But I did have interest at Harper and Row, and I sent a copy to Howard Zinn. And I had never met Howard at the time, but he was at Boston University, and he wrote me back a very nice letter on a single sheet of paper saying he hoped that the book would get published. 
So I showed the letter, and of course, Howard was quite famous. I showed the letter to the head of the paperback division at Harper and Row. And he said to me, he said, your book makes no sense whatsoever to us. We don't know what you're trying to do here. But if Howard's in, we'll write the introduction, we'll publish it. He was a very smart guy. And, uh, and, I, and Howard said, yeah. And they paid Howard $500. They paid me $2,000. And I wanted to call the book, as I said, The People's Spiral History of the United States. And, and they said, no, 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 come on. You're, who are you? You're 20 or 22 years old. Who's going to pay attention to that? And then they came in. They said, Harvey Washerman's History of the United States. <clears throat> and I, was, I said, come on, that's embarrassing. You can't do that. And they looked at me, and the sales manager, he said, Harvey Wasserman, that's the kind of name all you hippies really like. <laughs> what is that supposed to mean? You know, so anyway, it sold 30,000 copies. It got reviewed in Rolling Stone. It became a really, you know, a many, many, many young history, historians read that book. So then what happened was I got a job at Hampshire College because of that, which was great. And, uh, you know, I taught history for a couple of years. And meanwhile, uh, Hugh Van Dusen, the guy at Harper Road and Howard got together. And they and seven years later, and my book was published in 72. And in 79, Howard published the real People's History of the United States. And it sold two million copies. It's the best selling history of the United States in the history of the United States. And, you know, it was phenomenal. So then uh, you know, all 50 years later, um, uh, I, finally, I finally did settle down. I had a, a very interesting career, uh, a tremendous. I lived on the hippie farm for 14 years. Was that and like that, a cooperative living sort of experiment type farm or? Uh, I wouldn't, t I'll tell you the story in a minute. It was, okay. it was just a flat out, completely out, out there, unique uh, experience. But I taught at Hampshire College, and then I lived on the hippie farm, and we, we started the anti-nuclear movement, the no-nukes movement. And then I, uh, uh, many things happened, and I went back to Columbus, Ohio for 30 years. I went back to be with my parents, and then um, in 2004, uh, I, 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 um, my wife and I, well, I, I, met, I got married in 1988, and we had five daughters, and we raised them in Columbus. And then in 2004, from 2004 to 2017, uh, I taught college at two, two schools in Columbus, Ohio. And then I really did learn US history. You know, if you got to stand up in front of 20, 20 somethings for 80 minutes, my classes were all 80 minutes, um, uh, you, you got you to have something to say. So I taught US, I taught about, a hundred classes in U.S. history, and then I really learned U.S. history, and you know, thank you, and I, I, I really did develop a, a credible knowledge of the history of our country, and then in 2017, I stopped teaching. I, I really lucked out because I stopped right before the COVID, and um, I spent three years writing the People's Spiral of U.S. History. It was incredibly gratifying, and I love the book. Uh, it's about 220 pages, eight and a half by 11. It's got like 70 illustrations. And I just said whatever the hell I wanted. And uh, it's very opinionated and very unique. And, I, and it does have a spiral 
theory about it. It does explain U.S. history in terms of six spirals, six cycles, which got shorter and make a spiral. And I can explain it, uh, you know, very easily, basically. Uh, but, you know, uh, I'll tell you my life story and that, then we'll get to it. So what happened then was I was living on this hippie farm. And we had been part of a radical news service. And uh, it was in Washington, D.C. and then in New York. It was called Liberation News Service. And we were very uh, influential. People loved our stuff. And we were drug, sex, and rock and roll. And we didn't care. We just wrote anything we felt like. And uh, we were really, really good. And people liked our stuff. We had 400 subscribers. And our articles were being run in underground papers all over the country. So we were infiltrated by the FBI. And this is not a conspiracy theory. Well, it is a conspiracy theory, but it happens to be true because we have pro and all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. COINTELPRO. And we there were there were FBI agents who infiltrated uh, the organization. And we moved to New York after the Columbia demonstrations in 1968. And then push come to shove. What happened was uh, we were infiltrated by really nasty people who are anti-gay. Some of them were great people, actually. Some of the people who are on the other side in the faction fight uh, became friends of mine and still are. And there's a great movie about this, which you should see and your listeners should see. It's called Liberation News Service Under the Ground. You should put it in the chat and you should see it. It's about 80 minutes. It was uh, produced by um, uh, Rhode Island Public Radio, Public TV rather. And um, uh, anyway, so we, we were given, in the middle of this, uh, we got, uh, the Beatles gave us Magical Mystery Tour, which was their um, little video that they made that went with the album. And they gave it and we showed it at the Fillmore East in Manhattan. And our side took the money and we, we, <laughs> we absconded with the news service, but it was legal because we technically we owned the news service. And, to this day, I hate faction fighting. I hate infighting on the left. And we just decided to heck with it. And we went up and we bought this gorgeous farm in Western Massachusetts, outside of Amherst. And we, we wound up there, we ran the news service for a while. And then, uh, you know, we, we became hippies and we, we learned to farm. We, went, we did, or we, one of the first decisions we made was to not use chemicals on the garden. And we, we, you know, and we, we use something called the organic uh, gardening handbook. And, um, you know, it worked. It was fantastic. And then here's how this is what's called the law of unintended consequences. It's my favorite part of history, right? J. Edgar Hoover personally was involved in breaking up our news service. And see, he thought he was really being cool and really smart and hurting the left. In fact, what happened was we had this split. And the other group stayed in New York and they ran the news service for eight years and it was actually very good. So he broke up the news service, but he didn't destroy it. In fact, we wound up on this farm in Western Massachusetts. We ran the news service for a while from our point of view, but then we, we wrote books and I wrote my history book there and a whole bunch of other stuff. And we pioneered organic gardening for a new generation of organic farming. And you know, you know, Whole Foods and I mean, organic food now is a 
multi-billion dollar industry. And part of it came out of our, our little hippie farm. Then the big news, in, the, in, in December of 1973, the local utility announced that they were gonna build a, a double nuclear power plant four miles from our house. Now, I actually knew about nuclear power because I had done a report on it in ninth grade. <laughs> it was based on Our Friend the Atom by Walt Disney, which I had gotten for my bar mitzvah. So I, I cribbed my, my report then, but I knew actually how a nuclear reactor worked. And, uh, you know, and if you had asked me until that moment, was I in favor of nuclear power? I, I said, sure, you know, but when, they, when we saw what the nuclear plant was gonna look like in the middle of our rural community, we said, hell no, you're not gonna do this. And then we, you know, and we coined the phrase, no nukes. If you've ever seen a new, no nukes bumper sticker or a t-shirt, I have an archive of my stuff at UMass. And I actually have in this archive, the very first no nukes t-shirt because I had to test the silk screen. And so I tested the silk screen on this ratty old t-shirt and I kept it. And I still have no nukes t-shirts. You'll notice by the way, t-shirt I'm wearing is from Woodstock. So wow. um, uh, I do not remember if I was at the first Woodstock, but I was definitely at the second one because I spoke there. So at any rate, we started, there were people who were against nuclear power, but we started the no nukes movement. We coined that phrase and we, we told them that we, they were not gonna build this nuclear plant. Nobody gave us a snowball's chance of stopping them, but we did. And the Montague nuclear power plant was never built. They never even brought in the bulldozers. And where they were gonna build it is a nature conservancy, where you can go and lie down in the grass and look up at the sky and everything's groovy, you know? So I have spent the last uh, almost 50 years um, uh, 1973 to 2023, it'll be 50 years next, next year, fighting nuclear power. And well, we've real been quick, if, if I could, what made that protest successful? You said they, they weren't able to get their nuclear power plant there. What, what made that successful? Why were you guys able to succeed with the protest against it? Because we were able to show the rate payers, the people who paid electric bills to this utility, that building a nuclear plant was going to cost them a fortune because it made no economic sense whatsoever. At the time, the nuclear plant was going to cost a billion and a half dollars. And they kept going up and up and up. And the ratepayers kept, and there were ratepay organizations that kept saying, hey, this isn't cool, you know? And at the, at, when we first started, uh, Richard Nixon got on national television and said there will be a thousand nuclear reactors in the United States by the year 2000. If you can imagine that, that, that would be an average of 20 per state. I mean, you know, insane. Um, and, but in the year 2000, there were 104. So I, I'm not gonna say that we were responsible for stopping all of them, but uh, 800, somewhere along the line, 896 atomic reactors got canceled. And we were largely responsible for that. And even today, we're fighting them. They're 92 in the US right now. They're incredibly dangerous. And I will say, and I know this sounds hyperbolic, the number one danger facing the future of the human race 
as a biological species is the continued operation of atomic power reactors. They are incredibly dangerous. They are lethal to human beings and to the natural environment. God forbid we should ever have a Chernobyl or Fukushima in the United States, which we easily could, um, you know, we would never recover. Well, we could have easily had, you know, just major issues based on uh, what started in, in Ukraine a few months ago with uh, Russia's invasion. I mean, there was nuclear reactors there. I mean, you know, it's, it's scary. Well, I hate to tell you this, but it's not over. There are 15 reactors in Ukraine and Putin has six of them at Zaporozhye, plus they marched into Chernobyl like complete morons, you know, and, and completely irradiated themselves and almost caused a major catastrophe there. It's terrifying. The number one danger to the earth today is atomic, to human beings on the earth today is atomic power. And uh, I live in California uh, and I'm downwind from the Diablo Canyon nuclear reactors which are surrounded by earthquake faults, 45 miles from the San Andreas. These reactors average 39 years old. I mean, you, even hippies don't drive 39-year-old automobiles, for God's sakes. And, you know, in order to drive a car in California, it has to be inspected and it has to be insured. And they don't inspect these reactors and they're not insured. It's insane. So I will say this, and this is critical to know. When we first started finding nuclear reactors, uh, people said, well, if you don't have atomic power, where are you going to get the energy? <laughs> we said, uh, wind, solar. We had no idea what we were talking about. It was completely out to lunch. But in fact, wind and solar have been incredibly successful. They, they uh, you know, if you'd have told people in 1973, that wind and solar were, would be as successful and as powerful and as efficient and cost-effective as they turned out to be, they wouldn't have believed it. But it's been a, an astonishing technological revolution. And, uh, you know, it's a trillion-dollar industry that we helped start, really not knowing what we're talking about, but there you go, it happened. Real quick on, on the issue of nuclear. It was funny because um, I was out and about yesterday and I had one of these uh, people when I was out and about the grocery store just try to start chatting with me about, uh, you know, politics. They were going on about, you know, oh, the, the wind uh, and, 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 and solar, that, that's not going to work. If we really want to get out of this uh, petroleum-based uh, economy, we have to go fully nuclear. Um, how do you respond to the people that, that throw out arguments like that? Like uh, uh, nuclear is the only way forward if we really want to have a, a different energy economy. They have absolutely no idea what they're talking about. Nuclear power is the most expensive technological failure in human history. It is an absolute catastrophe. If you look at the money that's gone into it, they can't compete. They, they, the, the reactors blow up. They, 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 they cannot operate. Their whole workforce is, is you know, over the hill. Um, uh, the reactors are insanely dangerous. And if you compare the cost of wind and solar, uh, including batteries and uh, increased efficiency, with nuclear, there's no comparison. It's not even close. 
Do you think nuclear, with nuclear, do they have a lot of, is there like a big public relations campaign that they have going up uh, for it? Is that what has made it? Okay. Yeah, they're always spending money. They're always fighting, you know, this and so-called environmentalists and blah, blah, blah. And the point is that they are incredibly expensive. They cannot compete. They're unreliable. They, They do blow up. They kill people in the neighborhood. I mean, I went to Three Mile Island uh, uh, nine months after the accident. People were dying all over the place. Animals were dead. Crops were failing. Uh, I went to a convention in Kiev in 1996, 10 years after the accident. Horrifying. You know, I was interviewing people, and uh, I interviewed uh, the the, um, uh, so-called liquidators. They sent 600,000 people into the reactors, for God's sakes. And, We're talking you know, about Chernobyl now. Yeah, yeah. Chernobyl. And I do highly recommend, uh, there's another recommendation. This is a five-part series on HBO. It's about Chernobyl. It's actually one of the most horrifying things I've ever seen. Very, very well made. It's a document, a docudrama. Between the five episodes, it goes about eight hours. And what you, if you really want to understand nuclear power, what you need to do is you start the series like at 10 or 11 in the morning and you watch it straight through. You do not want to watch it night after night because it's horrifying and, and, and it's riveting. It's extremely well made. So it's called Chernobyl on HBO. You know, start in the early in a day and watch it straight through. Absolutely devastating and worth watching. And, you know, um, according to the best studies we have, a million people were killed by Chernobyl, and they're still they're still incredibly dangerous, and the same with Fukushima. You know, they said, "Oh, an American," and I marched in Japan uh, before Fukushima, and people were talking about Fukushima. Uh, I actually wrote an article about it in 1977. You do not build nuclear power plants on earthquake faults in places where there's tidal waves. How stupid can you be? And, you know, millions of people marched and the Japanese government said, oh, no, 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 nothing's going to happen, blah, blah, blah. And exactly what we predicted happened at Fukushima. And now we're predicting that there are earthquake faults surrounding Diablo Canyon. It's on the coast. You do not build nuclear power plants in a site surrounded by earthquake faults. Come on, guys, what are you thinking about? And the Nuclear Regulatory Commission uh, they, you know, they have site instructors, they, uh, inspectors. They have people who live on site. And the site inspector at Fukushima, at uh, Diablo Canyon said many years ago that Diablo Canyon cannot withstand a credible earthquake. And, you know, here I am in Los Angeles. My kids are here. My grandchildren are here. And they want to keep, keep operating these two reactors. They're completely irresponsible, criminally irresponsible. You want to operate Diablo Canyon, you show us the insurance policy that will compensate me and my family and everybody else who will lose everything when that thing blows up. And you show us the evacuation plans for getting people out of Los Angeles. You know, the uh, prime minister of, of Japan was contemplating trying to evacuate Tokyo. And uh, the only thing that prevented him from having to do it was that the wind, the prevailing winds were into the ocean. 
and if it hadn't been that way, you know, he would have had to try and evacuate 15, 20 million people. And uh, the death toll would have been in the millions, as it would be, God forbid, if something happens at the Abu Canyon or any of the other 92 American reactors. They all have to shut. We do not need them. They're expensive and uh, they're not in any way, shape or form effective. I mean, you know, the nuclear industry loves to talk about France. France has between 50 and 60 reactors. They're American design, Westinghouse. And France was getting 70, 80% of electricity from its power plants, nuclear plants. So now they're saying, oh, look at the price of gas. Wasn't France smart to build nuclear? Well, the fact is half the reactors are on the brink of shutting down because they're cracked. They're old. They're falling apart. You can't operate atomic reactors at those levels of heat, radiation, and pressure and not have them explode eventually. So they here Germany wisely has shut all but two of its atomic reactors that are going full bore into wind and solar. And the French are saying, oh, look at our nuclear plants. They're going to have to shut them. It's a catastrophe. Real quick, if we could, uh, because I know you've had some thoughts on him in relation to what's going on at Diablo Canyon. Uh, could you talk a little bit about your criticisms of uh, Governor Newsom? Well, Gavin Newsom, who I believe is a very high likelihood he's going to be president of the United States. Yeah, I, I think he's gunning for a run. I do think he's gunning for a run at the presidency. You have to remember, as a historian, I can tell you that virtually every candidate since 1900 that has run, that has won the presidential election has been the taller candidate. And I've met Gavin Newsom. He's a good 6'5". So, you know, um, the top four candidates for the Democrats right now are, are Biden. You know, the top five are Biden, who, you know, people don't want to run again, but he might. And then it's, it's um, Hillary Clinton and, and Kamala Harris. And then um, uh, Gavin Newsom and Pete Buttigieg. And of those five people, I'll lay you odds that Gavin Newsom is going to be the nominee in 2024. But he has betrayed the trust of the people of California. He's, a deal was cut to shut Diablo Canyon in 2016. It was a very, very good deal. It was, um, you know, I wanted to react to shut immediately, but um, it, it was the unions and the state and the utility commission and the local communities and the company and the environmental groups. And they came up with a plan to phase out the Apple Canyon, unit one in 2024 or by 2024, could be earlier, and in unit two by 25. And the reality is that these reactors are complete wrecks. They opened in the mid eighties. They are, you know, for pushing 40 years old. They are embrittled, they're cracked under-maintained, surrounded by earthquake faults, no place for the waste, and completely cost-ineffective. And in fact, they prevent the use of renewables. It's ridiculous. And Newsom should know better. And now he's playing around, trying to keep them open. And at the same time, he's standing by while there's a really bad anti-rooftop solar uh, uh, set of regulations being push through the uh, Public Utilities Commission. You know, it, it's really crazy because I, I'm in Florida right now, 
And there's a big push, even by the governor here, for people to transfer over solar. And our governor isn't exactly, um, the, you know, the governor of Florida isn't exactly a progressive. So. Well, the irony is that he vetoed an anti-solar bill that, uh, that Newsom essentially is supporting. Here you've got this fascist governor in Florida and this so-called progressive governor in California. And the, the governor in Florida is ostensibly pro-solar and the governor in California is pro-nuclear. What's going on here? I mean, DeSantis obviously is not anti-nuclear, but he did veto this anti-solar bill. And there's a counterpart in California that Newsom is supporting. It's outrageous. And, uh, you know, it, it, I spent a lot of time in Florida. And, uh, you know, solar panels should be on every rooftop in Florida, along with solar uh, water heaters. In fact, in the 1920s, 100 years ago, was, um, uh, every home in Florida had a solar water heater. You know, this is before photovoltaics. And solar water heating makes 100% sense, certainly in Florida, and it should be there right now. So I, I want to get back to the people's spiral. And I, I guess what I want to do is uh, I want to get into why you call it uh, the people's spiral instead of the, the people's history. What do we mean by spiral? And also, I want to mention, I, I love that you have that uh, Oswald Spengler uh, decline of the West quote at the beginning. And I know both of us uh, have different politics than Oswald Spengler, but you have that quote where he says, uh, every culture passes through the age phases of the individual. Each has its childhood, youth, adulthood, and old age. It's determined phases, which invariably occur. And you sort of go into uh, the history of U.S. empire from what you call the infant empire starting in 1688 uh, to sort of imperial senility uh, from 1976 to 1992. And then you get into the sort of Puritan death rattle that we've had since then. And really, you do deal a lot with this idea of a uh, the sort of Puritan DNA that's that's within the empire. So maybe you could speak to that a little bit. Well, it's the whole premise of the book is this. The indigenous, the Iroquois, the Haudenosaunee, the, the Cherokee, the Sem well, the Seminole didn't exist actually. Seminole was a later tribe in Florida, but uh, the Hopi, the, the Mandan, uh, the Sioux, the Lakota, all the, all the Indian tribes and nations were extremely advanced. This idea that the white people came to a, a barren, uncivilized continent is completely wrong. And the, the most influential in terms of the whites were the Iroquois, the Haudenosaunee. And I will very strongly argue, as I do, that's LA, you get helicopters from that all over the place. So the Haudenosaunee, the people of the Longhouse who lived between what's now Buffalo and Albany, uh, across upstate New York. They had an extremely advanced, sophisticated democracy. You can make the case that the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, which Ben Franklin said ran better than the, the, than the British Parliament, and, and he wasn't kidding, um, was the most advanced democracy in the history of the world. Uh, it was a matriarch. It was run by the women. And um, they had five nations that were unified into a confederacy that had a, a Congress that met periodically in the middle of, the, of New York State. And, and they, they had 113 codicils, 
which were the predecessors to our Bill of Rights. And they, um, you know, it was an incredibly sophisticated uh, 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 social democracy where, you know, people didn't starve uh, and uh, women ran the show. The idea that, for example, abortion would be illegal, you would have got blank stares from these people. I mean, they were there 20,000 years. Women knew how to do uh, and pregnancies. They had the herbs and the procedures to do it. And they didn't ask the men, for God's sakes, if, if, a, if a, an Iroquois woman got pregnant and she didn't want to go to term, she just drank some teas and went out in the forest and that was it. And then the men weren't involved, for God's sakes. There was no legal structure. So, you know, these, these jerk uh, Supreme Court justices who say historic precedent this and that, they never talk about the indigenous who, who were here first and who birthed democracy. The idea of freedom and of democracy came in America from the Indians. And by the way, the term Indian, um, you know, I use the word indigenous in the people's spiral. I, I prefer the term indigenous. But um, when I was teaching in Ohio, we, uh, we had a, he was the, he was a lawyer. He was the head of the new uh, Museum of the American Indian, which is on the, on the lawn at the Smithsonian. And so I asked him, how do you uh, feel about them calling the museum, the Museum of the American Indian? And he said, well, we like being called Indians because it reminds us that Columbus was lost. <laughs> you, know, you know, such a classic, you know, the indigenous had a great sense of humor. And they had a democracy. And what came to America in opposition to this democracy was the Puritans. The core of white American society came with the Calvinists who came to Boston in 1630. And they established essentially an Orwellian dictatorship. You would not have wanted to live in Boston in the 1630s. Totally male dominated, totally racist, uh, no separation between church and state, um, hated. I mean, gays, forget about it. You know, being gay was a capital offense. Do you know where the term fat comes from? It comes from the fact that the, they didn't do it here, but in Europe, they burned gay people. And the term fat came because they would throw faggots of wood, you know, pieces of wood, which were called faggots onto the fire. That's how the, the term fat became um, uh, uh, attributed to gay people. So the Indians were everything that the Puritans were not. The Indians loved nature. They considered themselves at one with nature. They were sexually liberated in many ways. Uh, they had marriage, but you know, they weren't necessarily monogamous, many of them. Some were, but you know, they were tolerant. They had fun. They, they liked being alive, you know. It was joyous to be a human. Um, uh, they had music. They had, um, um, you know, they bathed, for God's sakes. You know, Puritans never took took baths. Uh, you, you would not have been around wandering around these people. The Indians, they jumped in the ocean. You know, the, the whole idea of swimming actually in water was completely alien to the Puritan culture. One of the few first white people that actually swam for pleasure was Benjamin Franklin. 
who was in great shape. He was a great swimmer. So um, the, I, the, the American society that comes out is basically a, a synthesis of our, our mother earth, the, the, the people who loved our mother earth. That's the, the indigenous ind side. The indigenous side. And then our, the God, the father, which was the male dominated Puritans who called themselves Christian. Believe me, if Jesus Christ had walked down the streets of Boston and preached the Sermon on the Mount, they'd have, they'd have hung him in a, in a heartbeat, you know, just like the Trump people would. If Jesus Christ turned up at a MAGA rally and started preaching the gospel, they'd have killed him and tear him to pieces, for God's sakes. You know, Steve Bannon sits there in his war room and, and has spews all this hate and fascism and behind him, he's got a picture of Jesus Christ. Christ Jesus Christ, in a million years, would never have stood for anything Steve Bannon preaches. And ironically, you know, they call this a Christian nation. And if you asked, if you got together the so-called founders, Washington, Washington would have called himself a Christian, but he was an extremely tolerated, tolerant guy and made it clear that he did not believe this would be a Christian nation. No well, it's, way. It's like even if you look at, um, you know, Thomas Jefferson, like Jefferson had an interest in Islam. And, you know, he wrote his own version of the Bible where he took out the miracles, the Jefferson Bible. Uh, they, they were very interesting. They're not they're not like the sort of evangelical Christian right. They're very different people from that. Well, but they weren't Christians. If you'd have asked John Adams, Abigail Adams, Sam Adams, John Quincy Adams, Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin, James Madison, James Monroe, Thomas Paine, Martin Van Buren, none, they would all told you they were not Christians. They just weren't Christians. And so the founders of white America, the, the guys who wrote the Constitution, they weren't Christians. That's why the name Christian and, and does not appear in the Constitution. They didn't believe in it. And as you said, Thomas Jefferson, in 1820, published a book called The Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth. And he was a big fan of Jesus, as was most of the hippies. They, you know, he was a man of peace. Uh, he was a man who preached love, nonviolence. And, um, you know, Jefferson wrote this book simultaneously in English, French, Latin, and Greek. Only Thomas Jefferson could have done that. So um, uh, Thomas Jefferson, you know, wrote, he took the New Testament and he wrote the life of Jesus, but he subtracted, as you say, the resurrection and all the miracles. You know, uh, Lincoln allegedly wrote the story of, uh, of Jesus and again, um, omitted the resurrection, didn't believe in it. So, you know, what you have then in early America is you have a synthesis. On the one hand, you've got the indigenous who were very, very civilized and who understand, understood um, the needs of a, a social democracy. And then on the other hand, you have the Puritans who hated social democracy. They hated democracy. Uh, they, they, they did not respect people who didn't have money. They were extremely racist and you know, uh, viewed the, uh, the black people and the indigenous uh, and the Jews, by the way, as, uh, you know, subhuman. So um, the whole of American history 
it can be defined as a back and forth dialectic between our mother, the people of our mother earth and the people of God, the father. And the, the, the Puritans were very, very um, aggressive imperialists. They believed that they had the right to conquer the earth and to do it in the name of Christianity. And, and in a way, what you're saying is that those, uh, as you put it in the book, the imperial vultures are coming home to roost in the age of Trump and beyond. Well, Trump is the classic Puritan, except for his, except, you know, you know, he was a, he's a sexual deviant uh, or, you know, a uh, um, uh, predator, a sexual predator. And all the uh, Puritan men preached against having sex outside of marriage, but they all did it. You know, they, they said, no, 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 adultery, you can't do this, you can't do that. They all did it, just like Augustine. Augustine, you know, preached against uh, uh, free sex, but he kept having it, for God's sakes. So, you know, um, uh, it's a, a completely hypocritical society. And that, that, that was the dominant um, um, uh, male um, uh, dynamic that defined the so-called Christian um, America. And it was completely at odds with the indigenous. So what you have though happening is that continually in American history, you have cultural rebellion and you have uh, white people who like Tom Paine and especially Ben Franklin. Ben Franklin was the ultimate cultural rebel. Ben Franklin loved women, did not believe. He, he was part of a, a, a little thing called the Hellfire Club, too. He's like, rebel is yeah, in his. He believed in democracy. He was a social Democrat, Ben Franklin. He was the first major white abolitionist who opposed slavery. You know, uh, he was a total genius. There is no one in the history of the human race, or at least of Western civilization, that was more influential and more important than Ben Franklin. He's the true father of our country, Ben Franklin. So, you know, um, and what happens is he was an enlightened individual. He preached the enlightenment. And so you, what you have throughout the cycles of our history is time and again, you have cultural enlightenments, awakenings. There was a great awakening in, um, in the 1730s there was another one in the 1830s before the Civil War. There was a, a, a one before World War I. There, you had one in the 1930s and then, of course, the 1960s. And they always involved the same stuff, drugs, sex, and rock and roll. <laughs> you know, where a, a, a group of people become, they, do, they create great literature, they create great music, they forward the sexual revolution, they preach equal rights for women. They preach, you know, abolition of slavery, uh, social democracy, all the great things that we know and love. These happen in cycles throughout our history. And that is the wellspring of our democracy. And, you know, uh, and that's how the spiral works. Now, what happens with the six cycles of U.S. history, which are based on William Appleman Williams' theory from the contours of American history is that they get shorter. And so the first one, uh, what you have is you have a powerful leader, 
then you have a cultural upheaval and then you have a war and the war the war um you know uh, uh puts uh, uh, sort of solidifies the cultural revolutions and in these wars you know terrible things happen um but also you know society advances in certain ways and uh, and goes back in other ways. I have to move here to get the phone plugged in. So um, the bottom line, though, is that these cycles uh, continue. And you, the first is the revolution. Then you have the Civil War, which was a revolution. Uh, then what we should have had in, uh, in the early 1900s was another revolution. Uh, uh, by all uh, um, uh, realities, uh, uh, Eugene V. Debs, should have been president of the United States. But, um, and I, I, this will surprise you, but in terms of, in my, in my uh, telling in the spiral of US history, our very worst president was Woodrow Wilson. He was way worse even than Donald Trump. This is a Puritan, to end all Puritans, he was a vicious racist, um, um, a, a, a terrible um, autocrat. Sorry, there we go. A corporatist. Um, uh, and, and in many ways a fascist. And he broke the socialist movement. Had, uh, and he got us into World War I completely unjustifiably. We should never have been involved in World War I. And he broke the Socialist Party with a fascist repression that shredded the Bill of Rights and the Constitution. And I will say this, that we would be living in a very, very different world um, if Woodrow Wilson had not broken the Democrat, the Socialist Party, and had Eugene B. Debs become our president, which he could he could have been. I am of the firm belief that if the American public had its way in 1920, Eugene V. Debs would have been elected president. But they had him in prison, and you know, there's always this sort of footnote: Isn't it interesting? Uh, Eugene V. Debs was in prison. Um, uh, you know, when he ran for president in 1920. It was no accident. He was in prison because the Democrats and the Republicans knew that if he was not in prison, he would have been elected president. They were afraid of the workers rising up and supporting Debs. Absolutely. And Debs would have been a, a fabulous president. He was a, a tremendous human being. And, and, and you know, uh, one of my great ambitions in life is to make a major feature film about Eugene V. Debs. Um, uh, I knew I have just the guy to play him. Tim Robbins would be a, a great Eugene V. Debs, but you know, um, and Bernie Sanders would be uh, a socialist congressman. I, mean, I got it all worked out, you know. But you know, the reality is that our country took a horrible hit uh, because of uh, Woodrow Wilson. So, um, and, and, and you know, Debs was against the empire. There would have been no World War II if the United States had not gotten involved in World War One. I mean, that's the reality. So, uh, so then we had the Vietnam War and, you know, we, the, the spiral as it's laid out in the people's spiral of US history peaked, um, sort of ended in 1992, where you finally have a baby boom president and, uh, you know, the new generation comes in and Clinton was a total disaster. I mean, a terrible president. Um, he completely betrayed the, the hopes and dreams of our generation. Uh, what a jerk. Should have resigned. Uh, you know, if you look at the accomplishments of Bill Clinton's presidency, 
The only thing he really did of any lasting value was to inaugurate a national dialogue on oral sex. I mean, that's the only thing he accomplished. And, uh, you know, and then. Well, he, he arguably, I mean, he moved the Democratic Party rightward in a lot of ways. I mean, that's oh, that's totally. the scary part of his presidency. Yeah. Made himself a rich man and, and completely um, abrogated his responsibilities. Uh, outrageous how bad he was. Um, uh, Obama was, uh, no, J- W. Bush was, of course, a nightmare. Um, you know, our, our, our generation doesn't have much to be proud of in terms of uh, the boomers, in terms of presidents. Obama, uh, I would put above average, uh, you know, Obama handled the presidency beautifully. The, no president of the United States was as scandal-free as Barack Obama, both personally. And, I mean, nobody from his administration was indicted for anything. But, you know, he did not get us out of the war in Afghanistan. If he had come in there and pulled us out of Afghanistan and made the structural changes that he could have made in the wake of the, the big short uh, 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 you know, crash, and also, by the way, given D.C. statehood, where we would now have 52 Democrats instead of 50, um, you know, he could have accomplished a lot. But you know, he did handle the presidency well. There were a few other things he did that were okay, but he was responsible, Barack, for, for uh, Donald Trump. So Donald Trump is our imperial vulture come home to roost. And uh, we are now, but what, the other thing that's happening, and this is the major conclusion of the people's spiral of US history, is that we are now in the midst of the greatest generational changeover in human history. The baby boomers, that was a big one. There are 76 million baby boomers. It was the bi- biggest generational hit um, in, in the history of the United States and the history of the world until now. And now the millennials, the baby boomers were 76 million, the millennials about 86 million, and then you have the Zoomers. So more than half the United States was born after 1981. And the, 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 the two generations, the millennials and the Zoomers, are the most um, progressive generations in human history. And this is why the right wing is freaking out. I mean, the MAGAs, these are just old Puritans. These are, these are guys who can't handle uppity women. They can't handle, uh, you know, they call themselves Christian, but they're the most unchristian people you can imagine, you know, completely. I, I was going to say, if I could real quick, I mean, people say like Trump is, um, you know, so dissimilar to like so many prior U.S. presidents, you know, but if you look at like Trump, I mean, he took the whole make America is great again line from, you know, essentially Ronald Reagan. And they were both TV yeah. or movie stars. They were Hollywood uh, before they were presidents. You know, there, there's comparisons to be made, you know. I know it's, it's, it's interesting. Reagan and, and Trump are very different. I mean, I have to say I met Ronald Reagan. Uh, then when I laid eyes on Ronald Reagan, I knew he was going to be president. I also met George H.W. Uh, Bush and very cordial. We had a nice conversation. And, uh, you know, uh, you could see how he could be president, too. But the bottom line is that uh, these guys, the MAGA dates straight out of 1630s Boston. These people are intolerant. They can't handle diversity. They can't handle women. They can't handle sex. There was a great line uh, from H.L. Mencken, who was a commentator in the 20s. Who I, said I'm a huge Mencken fan. <laughs> Oh, yeah. So he said that uh, every Puritan 
lives in uh, with a deep-seated fear that, that someone, someone else is having fun or enjoying themselves. Yes, yeah, <laughs> someone else might be happy. <laughs> so anyway, um, you know, the bottom line is that um, uh, these people are fascists, and they 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 they're high uh, authoritarians. There's something about their psychological makeup they can't handle democracy, and they can't handle people who can't handle them, or you know, and so. This is their last gasp. And, you know, we're now on the brink of having a, a, div a, a divine right of kings being claimed by the U.S. Supreme Court. And, you know, um, uh, but they're not going to pull it off because there's one small problem. And this is the conclusion of the um, people's spiral. Well, there are a couple of things. Number one, we did succeed in revolutionizing the culture. And in fact, there's a famous line. There was a, a right-wing guy named Paul Weirich He's a conservative Catholic. And in 1991, he's very, very influential. He gets up in front of a, a right-wing convention. And he says, look, you know, we have lost the culture war. We're not going to give up. We're going to keep fighting. Uh, you know, we want to su keep subjugating women and, you know, stamp out uh, drug, sex, and rock and roll. But uh, the bottom line is we have lost the culture war. And they did. They lost the culture war. And so you had this brief rise of the evangelicals in the early 2000s. But the evangelical movement is falling apart. You know, it's dropped in half. It's, it's aging. The young people, I can't imagine why, are not becoming evangelicals, you know, and, um, uh, uh, and, and they, they, this, this overturn of Roe v. Wade, uh, I mean, it's insane. It's insane. And, and as I say, the indigenous practice, indigenous women practiced uh, uh, abortion and controlled their own bodies for 20 century, 20,000 years uh, before the whites came. So forget about it. Uh, so the bottom line is that they can't win because they don't have the population on their side. The, the principal difference between Trump and Hitler uh, is A, Hitler spoke better German. And B, Germany was not a diverse country and they had no democratic tradition. So Hitler could pull off in Germany, what he could pull, what, what Trump and Bannon cannot pull off in the United States. I mean, we're going to suffer some bad times. There's going to be some fascism here. There's no doubt about it. But the country does not like them. The, 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 the majority of the, of, the, of the millennials and the Zoomers uh, grew up in a society that we revolutionized, tolerant of gay people, tolerant of interracial marriage, not particularly racist, as a matter of fact. Well, to and with, tolerant of women's bodily autonomy as well. I mean, a number of things. Yeah. Yeah. And also, you know, um, hugely um, interracial. I mean, we have, you know, you have millions and millions now of interracial uh, human beings that did not exist uh, 50 years ago. So and also understanding the environment. So, you know. The big difference with the indigenous was that they considered and still consider themselves inseparable from the natural environment, whereas the Purins consider themselves superior to the natural, natural environment. Very clear. You know, the, the Puritan uh, mystique is that they are superior to Mother Earth and that they're here to subjugate the Earth. And then we're going to have all this Michigas and uh, the, the, the final battle and the Armageddon, and then we're going to take off out into space. Um, you know, and, and Earth is like a, 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 a way station. Whereas those of us, you know, who in, in, embrace the indigenous culture, 
uh, understand that we have one earth to live on and we love this earth and it's beautiful and it nurtures us. And I will conclude that rap as my book concludes with um, uh, uh, the importance of mushrooms. There's a movie all you guys got to see. It's called Fantastic Fungi and it's about the power of mushrooms. And there's a whole school. I, I don't know if you know the stoned ape theory, but the theory is- I'm familiar, that, but go ahead. Yeah. Um, uh, I heard Terrence McKenna speak, actually. Really? And, oh, my gosh. Yeah. And, um, and I, I've met Tim Leary a number of times, by the way. He was very cool. Tim Leary was a really cool guy. I, I've always lived by that uh, motto that Tim Leary had, um, you know, think for yourself and don't trust authority. <laughs> you have to tune in, drop out. And I'll give you a little hint. I once heard him speak at, at, at a, a pagan gathering. And the topic of his talk was, what do women want? And so he gets up there, there are about 50 people in a tent. And he, he says, I, I'm not going to talk about that, but, you know, ask me afterwards. And he just gave this fabulous rambling rap. It was, it was wonderful. I wish I, had, I wish I could see it again. And then so at the end, somebody says, okay, man, what do women want? And he goes, everything. <laughs> Only Tim Leary could have gotten away with saying that. So anyway, the bottom line is this. Mushrooms have changed society and human consciousness. The stone date theory is that the, the chimpanzees, whose um, DNA is virtually identical to humans, by the way, a chimpanzee DNA is, is very, very 99.9% .9 identical to humans. So they're living in the trees, and then there was a climate crisis, and they had to go out into the savanna. And in the savanna, there were animal droppings, and mushrooms grew on the animal droppings. And they ate the mushrooms, and their psyches changed. That's the stoned ape theory. So the bottom line is, and you'll love this, this is another, this is my favorite of all unintended consequences, okay? The CIA, well, LSD was invented in, in the 1945. It was discovered by a guy named um, Albert Hoffman. Albert Hoffman. At Sandoz, right? And he lived to be 102. And I'm going to recommend a movie to you, which you can see, Albert Hoffman. So Albert Hoffman was tasked by Sandoz to invent a drug that would treat postpartum depression, right? So they knew about this thing called ergot, which I know about because ergot is a fungus that grows on badly stored grain. And the, there's a theory that the witch trials, the hysteria- Right, the psyllium witch I was just gonna say, a lot of people say the psyllium witch trials were caused by ergot poisoning. Yeah. Well, it's very, um, it, it, it's credible. And, and the, this, this fungus is psychedelic. This term psychedelic was invented much, much later. I'm gonna tell you the name of the film and I want everybody watching you to see it. It's a four part documentary. It's on, I think it's on Netflix or Hulu. One, it's, it's easily available. And it's called How to Change Your Mind. How to Change Your Mind, put it in the chat. And it's based on a book written by Michael Pollan, who is the narrator of this documentary. He's a very good guy, very erudite uh, Harvard guy, um, and um, uh, very humble and a good guy. So this, what happened is that ergot was known, uh, and, and it, caused, it probably caused the Salem Witch Trials. It also caused the Great Awakening in, in Northampton, Massachusetts, in the 1730s uh, and 40s where people, again, 
had ergot, but they had the opposite. They had a great experience. And people were loving and hugging. And for about nine months, there was like a summer of love in this town in, in, in Massachusetts, which is the home of, uh, in many ways, of American feminists. So <clears throat> Sandoz knew about ergot. And they wanted Albert Hoffman to go in and, and find out the chemicals in ergot, a mushroom, basically, that would treat depression. So he, was, he knew what he was looking for. And he had 25 different variations of what he called LSD, lysergic dye something acid, right? And on the 25th one, he hit the jackpot. And he, it, it got on his arm. And he started tripping and he rode his bicycle home, barely made it home and realized that he had found what he was looking for. Now, there was simultaneously, uh, you know, many, many white people were aware of the psychedelic powers of mushrooms. There was actually a, a prominent banker, a New York banker named Gordon Wasson, who uh, studied mushrooms. And he went down to Mexico to this town called Watla. H-U-A-T-L-A, and he encountered a woman named Maria, um, uh, oh God, her name, her name escapes me, it always does. Um, uh, and, and she introduced him to the psychedelic mushrooms. Now the-, the um, uh, Is that Maria and, Sabina that you're thinking of? Maria Sabina, yes. I, I always remember Sabina and I have a hard time with, I always remember Maria and I have a hard time with Sabina. So she introduced Gordon Watson to psychedelic mushrooms. Now, they were known. I mean, the, the Spaniards, when they came, uh, you know, they stomped out. They wanted to stamp out the uh, uh, psychedelic culture because it was a threat to their religion. It was called, you know, flesh of the gods, these mushrooms. And so um, anyway, uh, um, she gives him the mushrooms. He understands that he writes a big piece for Life magazine, tens of millions of people were introduced to psychedelic mushrooms um, in the um, uh, 1950s in America. So, and then of course, and, and then you have Sandoz. Sandoz was sending everybody LSD. They wanted people to test it. They didn't know quite what to do with what they had. It was like when uh, Microsoft sent out, you know, the code and to DOS, they wanted everybody to use it. And then they've come to some kind of commercial reality. So in the midst of all this, the CIA gets wind of LSD. And they decide that they want to test it out to see if they can use it as a weapon of mind control and of war. And uh, in this documentary, How to Change Your Mind, there's one hilarious segment <laughs> where <laughs> they've got about six guys in uniform who are trying to march on the CIA's LSD, and they're just all over the map. It's very funny. But they did this thing. The CIA was testing it at Stanford in Palo Alto. And they put um, signs up on campus saying, hey, you know, 20, 25 bucks, come be part of this test. And one of the guys who went to test it was Ken Kesey, who wrote one, this great, great young writer. And yeah, one he, flew over the cuckoo's nest, yeah. Yeah, well, he takes the CIA's LSD and he says, wow, man, this stuff's fantastic. And the last thing on earth the CIA ever thought they were going to do was help give rise to the hippie counterculture. And, see, and, and Ken Kesey takes the CIA's LSD 
And he goes, starts to marry pranksters. And one of the other guys who took it was a guy named Robert Hunter, whose closest friend was Jerry Garcia. And Grateful Robert Dad. ends up writing all the lyrics for the Grateful Dead. Thank you. Courtesy of the CIA's LSD. So when you hear somebody saying, sometimes the lights all shine on me, other times I can barely see, lately it occurs to me what a long, straight, strange trip it's been. That was Robert Hunter on the CIA's LSD. That is the epitome of the law of unintended consequences. But you cannot overestimate the impact of LSD on the counterculture in America. Then in the 60s, and you have what I call the greatest awakening. And this is the pinnacle, the, the culmination of all the great uh, cultural revolutions through the cycles of our history. Now it continues in the 70s and 80s, you know, the music of the 60s really got good in the 70s. I mean, that's when it really took off. And that's when you have the environmental movement. And the environmental movement was partly the indigenous, directly direct impacted indigenous, and of course, the fact that we were all taking LSD or, or mescaline. I took LSD about six times, I took mescaline about six times. Mescaline was really good for going out in nature. And so, you know, you would sit out in nature on LSD and you'd spend like eight hours looking at a leaf. You know, I mean, it was, as, as did Henry Thoreau, by the way. Henry Thoreau, the, the, who wrote, you know, Walden Pond, he was a completely stoned hippie. And he would go out, he used to spend, you know, all day just looking at an ant colony. I mean, that was, he was a completely tripped out, you know, and he, of course, to cross the line, wrote the greatest piece ever written on nonviolence. Like civil I mean, disobedience, yeah. It will, you know, it's 10 pages long, totally condensed the, the Quakers, who again were a major force in American history, Nobody talks about the Quakers. The Quakers were incredibly influential. You know, Ben Franklin was not a Quaker, but he lived in, you know, next to them in Philadelphia. I'll tell you one of the big stories. Uh, uh, Franklin was a racist, just like all whites. You know, he was raised a Puritan. He didn't stay a Puritan, but he had two slaves and he believed white people were superior. Then one day he was somehow invited, and I'm sure it had to be a Quaker school, to a school that had both black and white kids. Only the Quakers did that. And he sat there and he was a scientist, you know, he was the quintessential scientist. And he observed that the black kids were just as smart as the white kids. And he said, well, you know what? Racism is nonsense. These black kids are no, they, they're human. And he stopped being a racist. He freed his slaves, and he became America's most influential abolitionist. That's the kind of stuff that I love about the spiral of our history. So the, the point is now that we are at point peak, the, the, the American Puritans are dying out. It is the Puritan death rattle. It hasn't exactly, Puritanism hasn't exactly sold with the American public. You know who's the Puritan is Putin. Putin's a classic Puritan you know, piece of garbage that he is. He and Trump are, you know, soulmates. And so um, the question is, will we survive the environmental damage being done by the residual Puritan culture long enough to 
you know, make our ability of the human race in the indigenous form to survive. And, and, and that, then survival means solar topia. Exactly. So because we have, well, the great surprise, and there are surprises, as I said, is that, you know, when we were fight, first fighting nuclear, we advocated solar and wind. We have no idea what we're talking about, but it has exceeded all expectations. Clearly, nature provides us with the means of survival and the means of a post-industrial society to survive is completely bound up with wind, solar, batteries, increased efficiency and organic agriculture. That is the basis of, of our ability to survive on this planet. And, you know, it's going to be a close call. I will tell you also, by the way, there is only one way to control population. You know, there's been all this talk, talk about the population ex explosion and too many people and all that. The only way that the population levels off and starts to drop is with empowerment of women. It's the great irony. If women are given, are educated and empowered and, uh, uh, you know, have the ability to support themselves in a, in a fair economy and are in control of the families, population levels out to exactly what the earth can sustain. And so as women are empowered and take more control in our societies worldwide, the population will level off. Real, real quick, I, I just had two things I wanted to ask you real quick, if you have time. Sure. So uh, the first, since you had mentioned Timothy Leary and you said you've met him and you did mention the sort of CIA and MKUltra stuff, there's always these conspiracy theories that Larry was working for the CIA. I'm just curious what you think of those because I've always, I've always thought Larry was uh, sort of on our side of things. Leary was in his own world, and um, you know Tim Leary lived on Tim Leary's planet, and um, uh, what working with the CIA by spreading LSD. <laughs> I mean, if he was more power to him, you know. I mean, come on, you know. Let's face it, uh, Tim Leary was. One thing Tim Leary did that people should note is he made a very conscious effort to never be photographed not smiling. You, will, you may find a picture of, or two of him, but they put him through hell. I mean, they threw him in prison. They deported him. I mean, they made his life really hard. And, but he was never seen not smiling. I mean, you got to remember, there's always a dynamic involved. Uh, Tim Leary was a you know, PhD psychiatrist who uh, got into LSD. He was also Irish. I mean, he was so Irish, you know, and Richard Alpert, you know, Baba Ramdas becomes a Buddhist and this and that. He was really Jewish. You know, he was just, he was just a nice Jewish boy who, who, who became a great pioneering intellectual, you know. And you look at Putin, Putin is many, many things like Stalin. They, they, you know, Stalin was a communist. Come on, he wasn't a communist. He was a czar. Putin is a czar. These guys are Russians. Mao was a communist. He was an emperor. He was a Chinese emperor. So, you know, you got to, they're always multi-dimensionals. We are Americans. Americans, um, it, uh, it, uh, we ingested democracy. 
from the indigenous. And the indigenous are still here and still powerful, for God's sakes. And the indigenous culture, which is one of the conclusions of the people's spiral, is that the indigenous culture will never go away. So there you go. And, and the very last thing I wanted to ask you, and this is apart from the people's spiral, but I had mentioned at the beginning that you've worked with uh, Bob Petrakis, also from Ohio. Uh, what do you think the importance of your and Bob's work are, especially when it comes to uh, the issue of elections? Well, the bottom line is that the, the, the ruling establishment, like the original Puritans, cannot handle democracy. And small d. And I will tell you, and it's very important to understand, and you people listening in who think you can't change the world, the idea that you can't uh, uh, defeat City Hall is a myth perpetrated by City Hall. And I've been spoiled in my life. I've been involved in the, the, the movement for legal pot, the civil rights movement, the movement to end the war in Vietnam, the movement to protect the environment, the movement to stop uh, nuclear power, and the movement to spread a solar topian culture, and also the movement to protect democracy. So we saw in Ohio, and again, this was none of my doing, I was uh, teaching history at Columbus State Community College and at Capital University in Columbus. And, the, and Bob and I had been, Bob Fetrakis, a, a great, great journalist, uh, we had been writing stuff together for uh, 15 years already. Is this then, for the, uh, the paper or the magazine, uh, the Free Press, right? Columbus Free Press, which he wisely turned into a website. So in, um, in 2004, Bob was a, a political scientist, and I'm a historian. And I, I had no idea what they were doing, but Bob, as a political scientist, saw that Karl Rove had come into Columbus and they were stealing the Ohio election. And he would, he, what we would do was he would send me stuff, and, and, and in the early evening, I'd get a memo or we'd have a conversation. And then I'd write the article, and I, I, as I did since college, I would write till three in the morning. And I would send back an article based on what he had told me. And then he'd correct all mistakes. And he had this website, and we put out the articles that showed how they were destroying democracy in Ohio 2004. And in the week prior to the election of 2004, we put out an article, basically 11 ways that George W. Bush is already stealing the presidential election, something like that. And it was the number one article on the internet worldwide. And then they, in fact, stole it. They did steal the 2004 election. So we, and this is really, I'm trying not to be, uh, make this sound too um, triumphant, but it, it's, it's what happened. So our big, our big demand was for hand-counted, hand-marked, mailed-in paper ballots. And we saw in Columbus and in, in Ohio and many other states that the voting machines that had been put in after the 2000 election were corruptible and hackable and could be stolen. The elections could be stolen, and they were. And the, the this is even aside from all the, the stuff about hanging chads in the 2000 election. We're talking about well, the 2004. Yeah. Right. In, in 2000, the year, the year 2000, Bev Harris showed that there was tremendous fraud in the voting machines in Florida. And then Greg Powell showed that um, Jeb Bush, the governor, the brother of uh, uh, George W., uh, eliminated tens and tens of thousands of people of color from the voter rolls. 
You know, Ralph Nader had nothing to do with the theft of the 2000 election in Florida. You know, and the Democrats, worthless as they are, spent, you know, decades screaming at Ralph Nader. Wasn't his doing. If they should have been screaming at Jeb Bush, he's the one who stole the election. So we, our awareness was heightened by what Greg reported from Florida 2000. And then in 2004, we saw all the things they did. And, uh, you know, we were, it was a second bite of the apple because of what Greg had done. So after 2004, we began a social movement demanding hand-counted paper ballots. And, um, and Obama really bought into our stuff. He never credited us, never, nobody ever did. But, you know, uh, they were aware, the Obama campaign, that you got to have people um, uh, voting by, on, on hand, hand ballots and you got to have mail-in ballots and uh, you got you to gotta watch for this stuff and you got to watch the machines. And you got to have people uh, at the grassroots. So that's how he got elected in 2008 and in 2012. But 2016, um, you know, Hillary wouldn't listen to us, but by 2016, the, the machines that they had put in uh, in the wake of the 2000 election were obsolete, they were unworkable. And we also, so we had a big, our movement for um, paper ballots really took off. A very large percentage of the ballots cast in 2016 were in fact cast on paper. And that's why Hillary won. She wouldn't have won in 2016, which she did do by the way, you know. Yeah, she, she won, won by, the popular vote, yeah. Won by almost 3 million votes. That wouldn't have happened if, the, if we didn't have paper ballots. And then came the perfect storm. Another law of unintended consequences. When the COVID hit in 2018 and then 2020, you had to have exactly what we had advocated for since 2004. You had to have hand-counted, hand-marked, mailed-in, hand-counted paper ballots. And that is why Trump lost in 2020. If you had had the election of 2020 conducted the way the election of 2004 had been uh, conducted, Trump would have won in a landslide. It would have been the real still. (laughs) What's that? I said it would have been the real still rather than what, you know, Trump and them claimed that that Biden stole the election. I don't believe that. But like, had it not been for those paper ballots, the mill-in ballots, you're saying the GOP would have stolen that election too. Absolutely. There's no way that Biden would have won in 2020. Had that, and I've seen various numbers, but it appears that over 80% of the ballots in uh, 2020 were cast on paper. Had that not been the case, Trump would be in the White House today. And we would not be having this. You and I would both be in Dachau, for God's sakes. So the bottom line is, is that we won that, that, that vote. Now, that the Republicans, of course, are fighting back with everything they can to subvert the democratic process to prevent mail-in ballots, to prevent um, uh, paper ballots, to prevent people from voting, for God's sakes. Yeah, they were very much against the mail-in ballots in 2020. They were saying, oh, this is going to rig everything in Biden's favor. And they were doing it because they knew, uh, based on what you're saying, that the mail-in ballots uh, would play to Biden's favor, that that there would be mail-in ballots that would be counted, hand counted. Right. And that's why the moderate Republicans supported it, because of the COVID. You, you couldn't have people voting in person during the COVID. And so it made perfect sense to mail out ballots and mail them in. Now, 2018, 
was also like that, by the way. A very, very high percentage of the ballots in 2018, when we swept the Congress, were on paper and were mailed in. And then the Republic, the right wing, uh, you know, the, 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 the fascists knew that it would happen again in 2020. And, and if you heard Steve Bannon, what he was quoted as saying was, their strategy was that the, the Republicans who, you know, discounted the COVID um, voted, did vote in person overwhelmingly. And, um, and they may have voted on paper ballots, but they were, they were brought in in person. And then the Democrats who were more concerned about the COVID mailed them in. And so the Republicans' ballots were counted first. And early in the day, and they knew this, Bannon knew this, and, and Trump knew it, it looked like a Republican landslide because all the Republican ballots were counted first. And that's why they wanted to stop the vote count like they did in Florida 2000, exactly the same in Florida 2000, where they, they stopped the vote count because they knew that the Democrats were going to win. Al Gore legitimately won Florida 2000. But, you know, uh, uh, they, they did that. And the Supreme Court stopped the vote count. And that's what they wanted to have happen in 2020. And that's why they went so crazy. And uh, that's so now they, you know, Rove and um, uh, a bar, Bill Barr, have formed their own legal team now. And they're going to fight uh, the vote counting in, um, in 2022 and 24. That's their, and, and they're going to base it on the states' rights things. And um, that, so people should join us. We and we, I want you to come on. We have a Zoom call every Monday, 5 p.m. Eastern time. It's the, the website is uh, electionprotection2024.org or write me direct, directly, solartopia uh, 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 at Gmail, S-O-L-A-R-T-O-P-I-A at Gmail. And uh, if you write me, I'll send you the link to the, um, to the Zoom call. And I'll tell you how to get my book, The People's Spiral of U.S. History. But uh, the, we had it not been for the election protection movement that came out of Florida 2000 and Ohio 2004, uh, we, we'd all be in, in death camps right now. So there you go. Well, hey, Harvey Wasserman, I've kept you longer than I expected, and I'm glad you humored uh, staying on a bit longer. Thank you so much. And I hope everyone will check out uh, the People's Spiral of United States History. Uh, thank you again, Harvey Wasserman. Well, thank you. It's been a, a pleasure. Send me the link and I'll send it around. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Harvey Wasserman. Be sure to check out his work at solartopia.org and check out his new book, The People's Spiral of U.S. History. As always, if you support the work here I do at Parallax Views, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Recently posted a jam-packed, long edition of the monthly Parallax Views Varn vlog crossover with C. Derek Varn. So if you're a Patreon subscriber, check that out. And with that being said, until next time, 
You've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like great. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff is a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.